Good afternoon and welcome to Enhancing Cyber Resilience with Timely Threat Intelligence, a health system CIO Media Inc. production produced in sponsorship with HHS 405D and sponsored by Fortinet. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. And we have a little poll we'll get to if we have time. Nice way to view the screen. Click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the slides in the video boxes the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're gonna go about 35 to 40 minutes with our panel featuring Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and CTO with Franciscan Health, Eric Decker, AVP and CISO with Intermountain Healthcare, and Troy Ammons, Field CISO for Healthcare with Fortinet. So let's jump right in. Important topic and lots to cover. Um, Chuck, let's start with you. Can, you. can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. I'm happy to. Uh, Franciscan Health is a 13-hospital system, uh, Indiana uh, up to Chicago, and we have a lot of physician practices. I shouldn't say a lot. We have a few physician practices in Michigan, so we're kind of do a Tri-state thing. We have about 400 different locations uh, spread across those three states, which include physician practicing, imaging centers, uh, same-day surgery centers, uh, uh, and we are also uh, part owners of Alberno Labs, which is a pretty good-sized reference lab in, in the Midwest. I have responsibility for the entire technology stack of the organization, from telecom, networking, servers, desktop, uh, you name it. If it's broke, it's my fault. <laughs> Very good, Eric. Hi, thank you. Uh, Eric Decker, CISO for Intermountain Healthcare. Intermountain is uh, an uh, integrated delivery network located in the mountain states, so primarily based in Utah, though uh, we have a representation within seven states across the region, uh, mostly right now within Nevada and Idaho. 24 hospitals, uh, it's a 24 hospital system. We also have uh, a plan, so an insurance arm to uh, to the organization. About 42,000, we call ourselves caregivers, the employees. So we, we all identify as being part of the care continuum. And, um, uh, you know, pretty dominant uh, organization out there in the Midwestern states, uh, Midwest, sorry, Western mm -hmm. states. You know, I'm actually based in Chicago myself. Uh, 200 and some clinics and 3,000 or so uh, employed physicians and APNs and APPs. And you're fairly new over there, right, Eric? I am. I started uh, three months ago, actually almost to the day. Actually, no, to the day. Uh, so prior to being at Intermountain, I was actually at the CISO for University of Chicago Medicine in here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Very good. Troy? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Um, so Troy Emmett, I'm a Field CISO at Fortinet, I provide uh, thought leadership and advisory to our customers after spending just over 20 years uh, in, on, in technology, most of which on the provider side, uh, you know, ranging from leading Epic implementations, EMR implementations, digital transformation, and then being the CISO for, for two of the largest uh, integrated uh, health systems here in the United States. All right. Well, I think you're qualified for the discussion. Very good. Um, 
Okay, Eric, let's start with you. What role does threat intelligence play in your cybersecurity preparedness? And if you can give some examples of how specific threat intelligence might turn into practical actions. Sure. So at Intermountain, we have a 24-7 in-sourced security operations center that um, that manages all of incidents, all uh, detection capabilities, and, and so forth. Uh, as part of that SOC, we ingest uh, a fair amount of intelligence, be it through commodity sources, through open source sources, to uh, ISACs. So there's a, you know, HISAC is obviously one that we heavily participate in. Um, and then we also have our own private sharing communities as well with some significant uh, health systems in, in the United States. You know, one of the things I will say is there's big conversation points around the value of uh, some of this information sharing. So the, the the question being, you know, if an attacker is coming at an Intermountain or an attacker is coming at a Franciscan Health, are they going to use the same, you know, uh, this the same platforms, the same IP addresses, the same you know websites, the same phishing context, all of those things as they as they go across, you know, the systems. Uh, I, I think that what we're seeing is that there's really two layers of intelligence. There's commodity intelligence that you're going to get through some of your um, your Fortinets of the world or your FireEyes of the world or whomever. And you know, I think that's good, just baseline uh, intel that you should incorporate and automate into your systems for prevention and detection methodologies. There's there, it will only help you, you know, to to incorporate that. Uh, but the the advanced uh, threat actors, they know that that exists. And so they're going to stand up their own infrastructures uh, on the specific to each of their attacks that they come at you. So it's less about the, the IOC, the IP address or the URL or the URI syntaxes and things like that from what we're seeing and more about the tactics and techniques that they use. So that's going to be consistent. They might change IPs, they might change platforms, they might change, you know, methodologies, but it's going to be the same way that they go about the attack, you know, be it through a fish, be it, be it through a remote access uh, exploit, um, be it through a zero day. We've seen tons of zero days, you know, it just in 2021, I'm really surprised by how many of those have, have occurred. And so, you know, what I, what I like to do, um, and I, what I think is really important is truly I get a good sense of what those tactic techniques and procedures are, the TTPs, you know, read into the Intel briefings that come in from the FBI through the, through CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, through your, uh, your ISACs that you're participating in, and look at those vectors, you know, if you can actually even leverage the MITRE attack vector, sorry, the MITRE attack framework as ways of uh, understanding how the intruders are going to get into your environment and you know, build your defenses up against those those vectors and build your detection regimes up against those vectors, then uh, you're going to get a lot of value in, in sort of this, this sharing. I will say as well, you know, from, from an info sharing perspective, you know, on a one to five scale sort of in industry, we're probably early stages of maturity of what this, what this looks like and how it can actually uh, be effective. And, you know, part of that is, you know, just participation, you know, when organizations are getting attacked by, uh, by these intruders, you know, the, the, the pushing out of that attack 
is fairly limited from the organizations and, and, and rightly so, because it's an, it's an opt-in kind of thing. Um, you know, when, if you're undergoing a massive attack that's causing your system to shut down, your the communication sort of clamps, you know, as it were, you know, inside your org and, and what you release uh, could have direct impact to um, adding anxiety, you know, to the, to the patients, you know, uh, on, on the situation of what's going on. If, if there's a mixed message that gets, you know, produced from the organization could have uh, litigation consequences, you know, based on, you know, what's occurring, civil lawsuits, et cetera, could have reputational brand damage. So, I mean, these are things that you know, organizations really have to consider as, you know, as they're undergoing uh, being part of an attack or being a victim of an attack. Um, and so really having a solid plan in place to understand exactly what you're going to do and how that's all going to work is really important. We, we can get into sort of future state stuff later on. Yeah, just quick follow up. So you're saying it's helpful to the industry, to others, uh, if those who are being attacked share as much as they can, as soon as they can. But you understand that sometimes that's uh, not their first priority and perhaps not even something they can do for a while. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the the less impactful attacks are probably shared more. And the big attacks, the ones that we see about in the in the news, a lot of people don't share that except unless you're talking to the FBI, you know, or the Secret Service or somebody like that. Then then you'll share through those channels. A lot of people don't know this. You can actually share that information with CISA. Uh, again, the Cybersecurity and Information Security in, Infrastructure and Security Agency. And it's protected under the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. So uh, you have liability protections, uh, you know, for doing that. Um, and when you share that information with CISA, it does go back into the pipe, you know, for everybody else. They work with the ISACs and such, so that information can flow through. Uh, but that's not a well-known thing, you know. And so it's, and again, your lawyers have to get involved, and you have to have that sort of pre-planned out on how how you're going to participate in the ecosystem of sharing uh, before you have any kind of big attack that's hitting you. Chuck, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, actually, I think Eric, you know, very well covered the landscape. Uh, you know, and I'll echo the point is that up until recently, uh, there really wasn't a lot of mechanisms for people to share data broadly. Uh, and I'll use the example of uh, what happened last year with uh, exchange servers where those, uh, you know, a lot of them are still unpatched, believe it or not, and people were getting just absolutely hammered. That information went out broadly. CISA was one of those that uh, broadcast that. Uh, HHS and some of those uh, those categories, the, the uh, public-private uh, uh, partnership that the FBI has with the security uh, platforms uh, and the, 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 the security officers. But you know, this is kind of like, um, and I'm going to use the word private club. People, uh, if you don't understand the language of information uh, in cybersecurity, you're not going to understand, you know, the the absolute depth of the threat. And so we have to depend upon people like Eric, uh, our CISA. Uh, I, I've been doing security for a long time, but that's not my primary role at, at Franciscan. Uh, I let Jay do uh, take care of that that load, uh, and I really appreciate that because he worries about it uh, more often. But uh, my team and his team, we work in parallel because I've got all the hardware stuff, all the patching, and that kind of stuff. And you know, and so I would agree that you know the the better information we can get out there in a uh, 
a manner in which uh, it's informative, but we have to be very careful because uh, it needs to be broadcast within those uh, those tight networks because if it just gets out, uh, people will actually ins- uh, exploit that information in order to attack others. Uh, you know, some of the things I, that really makes me scratch my head is when people give detailed information about how a zero day works or something like that, and I'm going, well, you just painted somebody a picture that they can use in order to uh, go attack someone. So I absolutely agree, you know, getting that information out to the people uh, that's appropriate uh, and can do forensics. And uh, there are you know, assistants and others will take that information and actually do uh, pretty deep forensics on it. But uh, as we've seen, uh, there was a hospital in Hancock County that was uh, attacked several years ago. And I, Steve Long's the uh, CEO and after it was over with, he did a really great job of educating other hospital CEOs about what uh, the organization needs to do. So getting that information out is very helpful, not only from a security standpoint, but also from a business operations standpoint. Too. Very good. Troy, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think Chuck and Eric covered it really well. You know, I think some things I would reflect upon is is it's really a team sport, kind of like Chuck talked about between the technology team, the security team, and then and then also just data sharing, information sharing amongst the the healthcare threat and, and security community, right? So so that's important. When I when I look at when I look at this topic, I, I kind of consider it, you know, both tactically and strategically, how are we using the the threat intel, right? So tactically, I think some things that are really important is to ensure that However, you're ingesting the data, you know, if it's IOCs or or actual, you know, uh, you know, threat tactics that you've got a really orchestrated and automated response mechanism. Because I think what we've seen is is the threat landscape within our health systems has really expanded, but then the attacks have as well. You know, the bad actors are getting more funded. There's becoming more of them. And in any time that threat data becomes highly more highly available, such as what Chuck talked about. Or when we're talking about zero days, there becomes more bad actors utilizing that data. So it's, you know, the, the attacks become more broad. I think a couple, um, you know, use cases that I've seen, you know, be really positive is, is also on the non-automated side. So having those ISAC relationships that, that Eric talked about, but then managed security partners as well, uh, having a really good collaborative relationship with them. All right, very good. Let's go to our next question. Uh, Chuck, we're going to start with you. I would imagine there are many sources of threat intelligence with varying degrees of cost and quality or accuracy. How do you choose? Well, I mean, Eric ran the list, uh, I think, in, in his earlier comments. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of absolutely really good free information because, uh, you know, the security community has learned uh early on to, to share the information and share freely, but there are others uh, that, you know, uh, you know, are worth uh, funding. It's just a matter of making sure you get a good information. And for me, uh, I, you know, like I said, I, I don't, I don't uh, deal in those type of things as much as I used to, but I usually got, you know, I talked to other folks like Eric and other professionals like him, you know, trying to get a better understanding of what they use. Uh, and then, depending upon if you're in healthcare, if you're in banking, or uh, you're, you know, just in industry, your sources of information are going to be a little bit different. The professional associations are also great. You know, Chime has a 
uh, as a security group, uh, which is really, really good. I used to be uh, fairly active in that, and uh, I know Eric is as well. Uh, a great group. Uh, there was a void uh, in the industry for those that kind of participation or that that collaboration, and so uh, they stepped up and, and did that. So uh, I'll you know I'll turn it over to Eric and let him uh, you know, you know sure. list off some other ones and how you know how they. Because I I really never picked any that we paid for because I thought there were uh, plenty ample uh, opportunities out there to get it for free and I'm I'm, I'm a demo country boy from Alabama so I'm going to go for free uh, in good. Yeah, I, so I'll give uh, three options. Um, you know, first and foremost, look at your, the security vendors that you're already using today. You might they might have feeds available just through. Um, you know, as, again, as, as Chuck was talking about, no cost. So that's a place to look. And that, that's going to get you to the commodity stuff. Um, I would highly encourage anybody who is uh, participating in this, if you're not in HISAC, to join HISAC. HISAC has never turned away a single hospital system because of an inability to pay. So, you know, they will work out deals with you on what is a fair amount, you know, based on what you're capable of paying and, and what you're not. There's only about, I think, 600 uh, members that are part of HISAC today. And I think uh, one of the numbers I've heard is we have upwards of like 7,000 or 8,000 some hospital systems in the United States. So like we should be, we need a lot more uh, coverage in just the, the ISAC itself. And as um as Troy had mentioned before, you're going to get not only through the ISACs, you're not only going to get the automated feeds that you can you can get out of uh, that system, but you're going to get the uh, you know a place where you can have a dialogue with other security professionals, you know, in a secure manner, in a secure chat, in secure email, secure you know any number of those different ways. And so high huge value there. The other thing I would suggest, again, another free service, and and not a lot of people know about this is CISA has uh, a system called AIS, the Automated Indicator Sharing System. I think it's Indicator. Yeah. And that is, again, another feed source for free. Uh, you have to register for it. You, you got to have your CISO, you know, essentially sign the paperwork to say that, you know, you're the uh, appropriate representative to consume the information. Um, but you can consume directly from CISA some of the indicators that they're uh, they're seeing, you know, and so you should incorporate that into your environment as well. You mentioned a couple of times, Eric, uh, not a lot of people know in yeah. different, in different instances. Um, can you talk more about why that happens? So I think a couple of things. So CISA really as an agency is, has only about two or three years old. Uh, so it's, it's still a, a fairly new agency. They, that you know, there's been variations of it, you know, in, in prior uh, prior configurations. But you know, as a as an entity, you know, as an agency itself, it's new. Uh, so that's one. Uh, secondly, you know, some of the, the like I said before, the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 uh, allowed for there to be protections in place if you engage with them. This is a this is a big challenge in in the healthcare space, you know, in general. It's like we we deal with lots of different agencies. We deal with OCR, we deal with FDA, uh, we'll deal with the FBI, with NIST, with Secret Service. Uh, now CISA is sort of in the mix, and so you you get these like this this alphabet soup of agencies that are out there, and 
it gets confusing, you know, as to who you're supposed to work with and who you're not. And, and I would, you know, even just posit in the current state, it's still not clear. I think we have a lot of room uh, to improve on that. And I can reference the four or five D stuff here in a bit and, and um, we can get into how we can help normalize that conversation. But I think that's part of it. Um, so, you know, but just as an example, other things that CISA does that people might not be aware of with taxpayer, it's all taxpayer funded and, and, and free resources. They will conduct phishing simulations for organizations. They will conduct vulnerability assessments. They will do risk assessments. Um, and they, they actually score out this information as well and, and aggregate it and produce it back to the industry to show uh, for those who are participating what the you know, what they're seeing, you know, from a industry benchmarking perspective, highly useful information, you know, so hopefully with webinars like this, we'll be able to get that word out a little bit more and, and get people using it. Very good, Troy. This, it does seem like uh, a challenge of a lot of potential sources of information. Um, <laughs> and even if they're free, there's the limiting factor of time and amount of information that can be in ingested uh, and put to good use. So more thoughts from you around that? Yeah, you know, I think it's, in, we're going to go into this, I think a little bit later, but but always being cognitive of, of you know, where you're investing into your, into your security program and not over-investing into one area. But building upon what Eric and Chuck said, you know, HISAC is a great resource. At Fortinet, we, we're not a health system, but we're a member, right? And and uh, just, uh, I think last month, I, I did a threat briefing along with CISA to, to share threat intel that we were seeing with regard to insider threat. And, you know, us being a member, we're contributing to the community. And that's, that's you know, th free threat intelligence that, that all members of HISAC are getting. And then, and then on top of that, I think, you know, going to your security partners first, right? Don't, don't necessarily look to find a new product to solve for this problem, because I think if you've got a security platform that can accept, you know, threat intelligence. Most of the time there's, there's plugins within that threat platform to, to build upon, you know, um, you know, the, you know, how sophisticated and how, um, you know, actionable your, your teams can be from a security operations perspective. And, and that's something that's always important. When I, when I looked at my, you know, previous security operations center, it's, it's all being about really efficient, right. And, and you know, managing those integrations, making sure that you're you're trying to uh, remove the noise, uh, so that so that all the security and you know uh, threat hunters within your SOC can can really be focusing on what matters is important. All right, very good. I want to switch topics a little bit. Um, and uh, Chuck, let's start with you. How do you engage with your C-suite as it relates to cyber preparedness? How do you communicate with your C-suite that cybersecurity has to be part of your enterprise risk management strategy? I understand that, you know, you've always been a, a very security savvy CIO, right? So you've always been someone that's interested in security. And now you have the CISO um, and you've never been a CISO, but you've always been sort of a security minded CIO. Um, well, maybe, wore uh, multiple hats. Right, right. So maybe some thoughts around that interaction between the CIO and the CISO, how you think that relationship works best, and then other engagements among that whole group of C-suite executives that could create a positive security environment. 
sure. So I'll, I'll give you one tactic, but if you look at the top of my head, doing it once is the only time you can do it, like running around with your hair on fire. So uh, it, it's the thing about it is, in some organizations, the, the CISO reports to the CIO and other organizations, depending upon its size, the CIO is the CISO. Uh, in two of my uh, previous organizations, I was both. Uh, and in one of those organizations, I was also the CTO, depending, like I said, uh, a health information exchange that has 70 employees. Uh, you're going to wear a lot of different hats. And the thing about it is, and I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, uh, organizations like Intermountain, where Eric was in Chicago previously, and Franciscan, they've invested uh, in that professional uh, because uh, cybersecurity is not something you can do. Uh, as uh, in addition to all the other things that you that you really need to do. However, in smaller organizations, you know, the ones I really worry about are, you know, physician practices are just as vulnerable as a a 16 bed, I mean, a 16 hospital system. Um, And, uh, you you know, the acute care hospitals, the community hospitals and stuff, you just don't have the funding or they don't believe that they have the funding to do that. And, you know, my observation has always been is, you know, managing your security is, is not about something that you're trying to, uh, to really avoid, but it's, it's going to happen. And to what degree uh, does it need to happen? And so a lot of this work that I've done in, in the security side is managing the risk. You know, what is, the possibility and probability of things occurring. And, you know, you know that if you don't patch your servers and stuff up and, and, and you don't change your admin passwords, then your probability is going to be pretty, pretty high about doing that. But you, but security is not just the CISO's responsibility. You have to build it into all of your IT organizations. Uh, you know, every, as far as I'm concerned, every member of our organization should be security focused. They should understand that this email that's coming from somebody that who wants to give me something very well could be a threat vector that's going to shut my entire, you know, system down because of malware and ransomware. And so, uh, you know, un- getting those folks to understand that. But you know, other the other thing, Anthony, about, you know, getting the the CEO and the board engaged is you, you have to uh, you know do your report outs. You have to have information to provide for them that is appropriate. And what is it that the board really wants to understand? Well, they want to make sure the organization is safe because they're also managing risk, not only from a fiduciary standpoint, from a legal standpoint, but also from a public relations standpoint. Because Patients choose where they go, and so they need to. You know, they want to go to a place where they feel their information is safe. And the last thing you want to do is be the headline of the newspaper, and so uh, getting them engaged uh, in sharing information. Not to, uh, you know, a lot of people I've seen, uh, or sh- I shouldn't say a lot. Some people I I've seen use um, fear uh, as a motivator for security. Well. I, I think safety is a, a better motivator rather than scaring somebody to death. Uh, you, you don't get people to buy car insurance by showing them car accidents. Uh, you get people to you know, buy car insurance before having pretty little gecko, uh, geckos up there to tell you about, you know, say 15% for 15 minutes. I just did a commercial for them. Sorry. 
Well done. Uh, but I mean, uh, but I think that you know you have to build that relationship, and it you know you have to be credible, and you have to be believable, uh, and you have to have a defensible position about the reason you want to spend money. I mean, I, we've over the last two years we've probably tripled the size of our security uh, staffing program, and we've only done that because of you know building relationships not only with the CIO but with risk management, with compliance. Uh, with legal uh, and a lot of other folks uh, to build those programs. Very good. Eric, um, what do you need from the CIO uh, from the rest of the C-suite? What kind of support do you need to be successful as a CISO? You can't get anything done if people are undermining you. I mean, I think security is taken so much more seriously now than it was five years ago, so it probably is easier. But still, you need that executive sponsorship and support um, to say, hey, we have to do what Eric says. Right. And, 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 you know, I would say even to go beyond that, it, it needs to be a shared responsibility. You know, I, I consider myself to be the chief risk advisor around cyber issues to the business and a business leader, first and foremost. And, and that means I need engagement from the other executives and, and, all the way down to the front line as well on the, on the issues at hand. So I, I think obviously they're not going to understand all the nuances and how this all works. I mean, that's my job is to make sure that I can translate uh, the technical stuff and turn it into something that's palpable and understandable, you know, to the rest of the organization. Um, adding on to something Chuck just said, I mean, I, when people ask me a lot as well, like, you know, what, what do you do at the board and how do you, you know, describe this information? What, what is it, what's the right level of uh, conversation to have at the board? You know, there's, there's things that you need to think about. So, you know, ultimately be it at the board level or at the executive level, there's, I would say there's three things that the organization wants out of you. First, they want to know that you're a trusted person that has the interests of the, of the business um, at hand. I mean, going back again to the fact that we are business leaders, we are not our own special and unique uh, part of the organization that just gets to do whatever we want to do, you know? So we have to have, we we need to make business decisions just like everybody else needs to make business decisions. So they want us to be a trusted partner. They want to know that they have the most capable people involved and, and that they've got the right level of depth and understanding in that. And they want to make sure that there's make that progress is being made, you know, to to fix issues. Those are really that's it. Those are the three things that your board wants out of the CISO, and those are the three things that your executive teams want out of that. Now, how we go about doing that and proving trust and proving capability and proving uh, that we are adding value back into the organization is the art of cybersecurity. So, uh, so consider that as you're working with them, you know, some, some concrete, you know, uh, examples I would always say are, you know, make sure you have governance in place and, you know, in that governance, make sure that, that it's, you have an executive level team that has representation, cross representation across your organization and that the, those players are uh, attending, you know, that, that session. Uh, I would suggest that you you chair those governance committees with business leaders outside of IT and outside of cyber. You know, we should, from a cyber perspective, we should be up there presenting materials, presenting risks, engaging in discussions, and get, uh, curating a conversation and facilitating a dialogue, and having the the organization ultimately 
um, get to what is our level of risk tolerance that we want to accept, you know, within the confines of, of the situation at hand. So um, that's, that's, again, that's an art, you know, to, to be able to establish that. I would also say, you know, set a cadence for those meetings and never, uh, never cancel them. Absolute worst thing you can do. Even if you don't have a topic, come up with a topic because <laughs> you want you want that FaceTime and you want to be there and engaging and you want people to be considering, you know, the, these issues in addition to everything else that they have to deal with. You know, so if, if you start canceling that information, it just goes back into the wayside. It becomes, oh, that's Eric's problem. He'll deal with it. And then suddenly the cyber program, again, falls back into the shoulders of the CISO and the IT division, which it needs to be outside of there. Excellent. Troy? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, building upon what Chuck and Eric said, you know, putting it in terms and in a process that your business leaders leaders understand, right? So if you have, if you've got an enterprise risk management uh, processing and committee and board, and that's, that's looking at fiduciary risk, that's looking at facility and patient safety risk, make it another subcommittee of that, of that group so that when you're looking at organizational risk, it is, it is really embedded within, within all of that, just as cyber, right? Because it's all about risk either to the brand, to you know, the fiduciary uh, responsibilities of the organization or, or patient safety, right? Uh, I've, I've kind of got a, a really great story. You know, we, I had a baby in, a few years ago and, and we, we had an enterprise risk management process and risk assessment process and, you know, being real and being, you know, looking at the, the business impacts. And, and we, we had a, a solution that we were looking to bring in for, for infants. And, and that, that solution, was it provided a great solution for our patients, it, it didn't meet our security requirements. Um, you know, fast forward within that story, my, my baby was almost in the ICU and that tool would have been very helpful to take care of, take care of my son. Uh, but, but the organization had to take, take a look at risk and how that could impact the business, uh, how it could impact the, the patient experience uh, and ensuring that we're within compliance. So it's, it's really interesting kind of full circle when you look at, you know, some of these issues, but really understanding the business and aligning your processes to, to, to the business is important. Perfect. Troy, we're going to stick with you, start off with you on this one. What does current threat intelligence tell us? intelligence tell us to watch out for and what are some of the best defenses against these threats so what is currently going on well there's a lot right and uh, i think it's a really challenging space for a lot of health systems so you know I, I think what what a lot of you know health systems are faced with is i think the first thing i always talk about is just making sure that you're foundationally uh positioned well from a security perspective you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're following all the best practices, which is, whether that's, you know, from, from HHS or NIST or, or high trust, uh, you know, foundationally ensuring that you have, you know, uh, strong identity and access management, ensuring that you uh, are taking care of workforce mobilization. I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges, right, is the expanding threat landscape within healthcare. Uh, but then some of the, the more advanced threats, you know, when we look at, ransomware attacks today, um, you know, and then go back one year, what's really changed is, is not a lot of the, the attacks and what they're using, such as malware ransomware. Yes, that's different and it's evolving and that type of thing. But, but the thing that we're seeing is the impact to operations, right? So, so in my role previously overseeing digital transformation, EMR, EMRs, and, and then as a CISO, never did I see 
a health system, you know, with a downtime of their EMR go for weeks or months. Uh, so that's something that's, I think, uh, something that a lot of organizations are, are really challenged with, you know, today. Uh, so they're, they're looking at that. And I think information sharing amongst executives, even at the CEO level to, to really demonstrate this is what's, this is what's happening during a, a major ransomware attack. That's some of the thought leadership and collaboration that we're looking to bring together. Yeah. So we're seeing the effects be uh, more devastating than ever. Mm -hmm. um, Eric. So I'm going to put a plug in for a publication that the public private partnership with HHS has uh, produced in the last couple of years uh, to help protect against these things. So we, we produced a uh, so little backstory. I'm the industry lead for an initiative called the HHS 405B program. Uh, critical infrastructure has come together under a, a joint national program between industry and government. Uh, I have a government count, uh, counterpart uh, in the organization, and there are about 250 of us came together several years ago and produced the health industry cybersecurity practices, managing threats and protecting patients. Uh, we shortened this whole thing, this publication up into uh, an acronym called HICCUP, H-I-C-P. Uh, so HICCUP uh, posits that there are five threats that the entire healthcare industry faces, ransomware being one of them, and 10 practices in, that you can uh, implement to mitigate much like hygiene and upwards of 89 sub practices stratified across small, medium and large size organizations. So if you are a small physician practice of you know three or four physicians, there's a guide for you that's built, purpose built to say, these are the things you can do, which will have complete and direct, well, I shouldn't say complete, it will have direct ability to mitigate the threats at hand. Um, that publication, so first and foremost, everybody on this call should be looking at that, looking at Hiccup. And not only should you be looking at it because I think it's a great publication, <laughs> uh, but you should be looking at it because it has just been recognized as a recognized cybersecurity practice and amended high tech. And so if you have adopted Hiccup in the last 12 months and you have a breach, OCR is required now, statutorily required to give, uh, take that into consideration when they're looking at civil monetary penalty, resolution agreement, and oversight functions. You know, the, the whole point of that new law was really, let's try to find the balance between um, being a victim and being um, and, and not doing the, the right things, you know, as an, or, and ignoring the situation, ignoring mm -hmm. the problem. Uh, so, you know, take a look at there. Uh, there are some, you know, again, to sort of get principled here, um, the, the attacks, the, the majority of attacks still come in through phishing. So having phishing defenses is going to be incredibly important. Um, looking at your exposed perimeter, uh, the things in your DMZ, uh, as we're now all remote, you know, you have to consider your endpoints as well as part of that perimeter and, that, and, and your identity as part of that perimeter. So, you know, turn off access to things like RDP. I, I, I am still shocked by how many attacks occur because people have RDP, remote desktop protocol, directly accessible to the internet. It is a, a highly used vector to break into, uh, break into an endpoint, and then they use that to pivot and get into the rest of your organization. So cut that off. Um, and you know, be on top of those critical vulnerabilities that are coming out. So when CISA and the FBI and everybody is out there 
warning people of the VMware issues, the Pulse security issues, the, the Microsoft Exchange issues that were happening. Do not ignore those, those, um, those notices. They are, they're, they're notices because they're active attacks that are happening and leveraging them. And you, know, you want, with, with a critical vulnerability, you want to try to get that resolved within 48 hours, if you can. I mean, it's that fast that you need to be able to operate. <clears throat> Chuck? I, I would agree, uh, since I was uh, one of the reviewers of the original uh, 405B, uh, and uh, I, I, they've uh, asked me to rejoin, so I'm kind of working with that group again. I absolutely agree, and I was actually very excited to see uh, that publication, uh, because it's actually written in two different uh, pieces, uh, one for very large organizations and one for smaller organizations, and I think that's important because um, it's, uh, you need to, uh, address the risk, but appropriately depending upon the size of the organization, larger organizations have more gaps. Uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you have more, a more opportunity for uh, failure. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think that those are, uh, you know, some of the you know great things that, that Eric mentioned about, uh, and I think there security is one of these things that we're never going to get perfect uh, because, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the threats are like, you know, standing at the bank of a river and watching them run by uh, and depending on what's happening upstream uh, is you're going to get more or less water. Uh, and so depending upon what's happening uh, in the environment, you're going to get more or less threats. I've never seen less. Uh, and so we have to, uh, Use this as much and many tools as we possibly can in order to cover uh, cover the basis, and so it's something that you're going to have to be continuous, uh, continuously vigilant on, continually learn. Uh, and if you're not engaged uh, with the right organizations, with the right groups, the right uh, professional uh, organizations, then you're going to be behind the eight ball, or uh, you're going to have to spend uh, a significant amount of money. Uh, outsourcing uh, your security practices, which that's kind of letting somebody else uh, manage your bank account for you. So I think that's uh, not necessarily good things. And so, uh, you know, kind of the, the best defense is going to be around a multi-layered approach. Uh, you you can't, you know, firewalls is not going to do it. Uh, uh, your uh, SOC is not going to do it. You know, your vendors are not going to do it. Uh, you're going to have to create those partnerships and internal organization in order to manage uh, the, the various levels uh, of, of threat. And part of that is your, your workforce. And so you have to educate them as well. So that's kind of all over the place, but uh, that's kind of like uh, how cybersecurity is. It's all over the place. I mean, I, I worry more about uh, our IOMT devices. Uh, we've recently put in a, a product so we'll know exactly what's connected to the network and what it's talking to. Uh, it was, you know, when we did the proof of uh, concept, it was absolutely shocking uh, to uh, see uh, the amount of data that we could get by a, a piece of uh, software and devices that would passively listen to the traffic on the network. Uh, and we're building that into our threat management as well. All right, very good. We have some audience questions that I want to get to. So um, first one, we have recently engaged with CSIF to facilitate a ransomware tabletop exercise. 
What are your thoughts on their free services, including their offer to do our SRA and provide recommendations? It is hard to believe that you can get uh, such a great service for free when vendors are charging so much. Eric? So the first thing I'll say is, you know, for, for organizations that have a minuscule margin, let alone a minuscule IT or cyber budget, you're not going to beat what CISA is, is providing you, you know, and, and CISA is prioritizing healthcare uh, in the list of, you know, people that come in and ask for, ask to consume their services. They, they prioritize healthcare as a, on top of the list, you know, for if they have to make a decision on, you know, company A or company B. Um, so if you've got nothing today, I would absolutely do it. You know, there's, there's no reason not to. Uh, the information that, that they provide back to you, you know, be it through the phishing simulations or the vulnerability assessments and so forth, cannot be used against you in a regulatory capacity. If that is, again, written in law. So it's, it's not permitted. So I would do it. I would even say for the organizations that are out there that have these programs, you know, the phishing simulations, the vulnerability assessments and so forth. I wouldn't, you know, an organization like Intermountain, we're very big. We're very complicated. The ecosystem is huge. There's no way that CIS's, you know, vulnerability assessment mechanism is going to be able to cover everything that we need uh, to look at, you know, from an internal perspective. And it's going to give you that perspective from the outside world. But that said, it is an interesting benchmark and it's an interesting another look at what, you know, to, to validate what our current programs are, are doing. So something to consider there. Very good. Troy, let's go with you on this one. What are your thoughts on the growing threat of medical devices as an attack vector? And do you see any assistance on managing these from government agencies like CISA? Yeah, well, great question. You know, I think that there's many agencies, right? Whether it's CISA, whether it's CFDA, um, you know, really putting a lot of, of thought into this, you know, you know, also from, from my seat now at Fortinet, we're seeing a significant number of medical device manufacturers realizing that going to health systems and selling their products or, or laboratory organizations, having a strong security posture amongst their connected medical devices, a differentiator in the market, right? So they're investing into technology, embedding endpoint technology, installing firewalls, you know, right along with those, you know, connected medical devices. But, you know, I, I think definitely that, you know, the, the partnerships with CISA, the FDA are important in, in, in creating guidance and creating regulation. I, I was just listening last week to uh, Jessica Wilkerson with, with the FDA and, and a lot of folks, you know, go back to the table and say that, well, the FDA does not regulate cybersecurity and connected medical devices. And yeah, I, I think her comments, um, um, you know, we're really, would they regulate anything with regard to patient safety and connected medical devices and right. ensuring that device is, is uh, secure from a cyber perspective really uh, aligns with, with patient safety. So, so absolutely. Can I add into that, Anthony? Please. I would, I would just go out uh, and say as well to, to tack onto what Troy said, Jessica is a fantastic addition to the FDA and the cyber program, uh, the, the, the cyber program for connected medical devices. You know, they have, um, Suzanne Schwartz, who runs that, that whole division has been a, a great ally in all of um, the last several years in understanding the problem. Uh, you know, the FDA has, has really stepped up with their pre-market and post-market guidance 
And as they continue to mature their programs, uh, you know, prior to, uh, to Jessica being there, Seth Carmody was, uh, was at the helm sort of trying to work through those issues. And he did a, a fabulous job with the limited resources that at the FDA actually had to, to focus on this particular issue. So there's more that's, that's happening on that front. Um, again, this is just a, an industry perspective, just sort of outside in looking at, at what's going on over there. Um, and you couldn't have a better advocate out there than, than Jessica. So if, if you as a practitioner are running into challenges with medical device issues, um, or, you know, I know they're specific, they're specifically interested in any of the, the patient safety impacts due to uh, outages or disruptions, you know, where the devices are somehow connected into the cloud, those kinds of things, you know, you can reach out to the FDA and have a conversation with them and they would be more than willing to understand and talk to you about what the, the problem is. Very good. I just want to read the URL that Eric has sent out uh, for the Hiccup publication for those who uh, listen to this uh, from an audio point of view. That's phe.gov backslash 405D, phe.gov backslash 405D. Chuck, let's uh, go to you for the next audience question. Do you have suggestions on some of the standard security metrics to use for reporting to the board? Do you recall uh, when you were handling security, the things that were useful for the board to see? Well, I mean, there's some, I think that what the board really wants to see is around risk. Uh, you know, what you're doing for the program, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, industry-wide things that uh, are being reported and what you're doing in order to mitigate those those risks. And, you know, there's a, a couple of Mitch, uh, and a few other uh, CISOs like Eric that I know, they, they use what I call heat maps. Uh, they're basically a security risk matrix uh, based upon, you know, a lot of a, a variety of things, you know, vulnerability and pen testing and that kind of stuff. You know, here are the threats we're identified. Here's what we're, uh, what we're doing about it. And so I don't think the board wants, you know, uh, uh, intimate details. Uh, what they want to do is they want to understand that, uh, you understand the risk. Uh, you can be trusted in order to identify that. You have appropriate staffing and resources in order to uh, move the program forward, and, and you're keeping the organization safe. And you and I, you know, what I've done in the past is, uh, and I'd recommend doing is not necessarily, uh, you know, Eric mentioned about sharing some of these things with the business leaders, and that's absolutely uh, critical because. Uh, you're, you can be a talking head, you know, it's your job to make sure that, uh, you know, the organization's safe. But when you have one of your business partners like risk or compliance or privacy, you know, also saying the same thing as part of that uh, joint presentation to the board uh, is very, very helpful and adds credibility to the program because it lets the board know that you're not working in a vacuum. Uh, because uh, you really can't uh, if you're going to provide the level of uh, safety and risk management that you need to uh, for the board. Eric, anything you want to add to that about reporting to the board? Yeah, I'll say it's it. This is going to be one of those very board specific kinds of answers. Um, you know, every board is a little different. You know, some of them want to stay incredibly high level. Some of them want to dive into you know into details. And I've I found it very interesting as I talked to peers in the industry sort of on this exact question, like where, where they're at. 
but I can give you some advice. Um, so first of all, I'll make another plug. Uh, one <laughs> of the things that we are doing within 405D is we're producing a new publication and that is cybersecurity as a component of enterprise risk management. Um, so we are in the, in the draft of, of that phase now. We're actually leveraging uh, one of, because we do this all the time with 405D, we're leveraging one of the NIST frameworks. Uh, it's called 8286. And what, what that NIST framework talks about is essentially that, you know, cyber as how cyber fits into ERM conversations and then how you can, you know, ultimately engage your, your stakeholders with it. So we're taking a healthcare specific bend on it. And there is going to be some, some guidance that's going to come out through that publication on how to have this conversation. Um, to get specific, I would um, I would encourage organizations to adopt risk registers as a means of identifying and tracking the, the risks that are out there. And, and depending on how large your organization is, you might need a multi-tiered risk register system. It can get pretty complicated pretty fast to do that. Uh, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, the risk register should describe what the issue is, describe what the impacts could be and then have some you know, qualitative, quantitative ratings associated to it. So the likelihood of this, the, uh, the impact if, if achieved. And then the most important thing is that there's an actual owner to the risk so that there's, you, you can identify the problems, but if you're not working the problem and you don't have somebody identified to work the problem, mm -hmm. you're just identifying a problem and you're not going anywhere with it. So with risk registries, you can do what, what Chuck just talked about, which is, you know, display a peat maps and show sort of where things uh, reside on a, on a one page kind of, kind of view. And that's really helpful. Another view that's, that's useful is uh, looking at cyber maturity. And so I would encourage the adoption of the NIST cybersecurity framework. Uh, if you adopt the NIST cybersecurity framework, you're also tying in nicely to the recognized cybersecurity practices and the amendment to high tech. And so by doing that, you could, you know, based on their tiering, the tiering structures there, you could talk about where you are in your journey. And you can have, again, sort of a one-pager conversation about where we are. You, you, perfect state doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the top end of maturity. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be dependent on your institution and what level of risk tolerance uh, and acceptance you're going to have to accept. All right. I yeah, want to and try. One thing I, I, oh, go ahead, Chuck. So, and, I'm sorry, Anthony. I'm going to add no. one thing to uh, Eric's uh, comments. Is that some some organizations, uh, as he said, is you know the the boards are different. Uh, some may very well have a subcommittee of the board which is uh, is you know part of compliance or part of risk that cybersecurity is going to be a part of. Particularly the folks that are you know trying to uh, ensure the organization around uh, cyber risk. Uh, and so the board may be very interested about, you know, how much their premiums are going to be going up, which could be substantial uh, these days, I uh, understand. And, and the, the insurers are asking more and more questions. And so you may be invited into as part of those conversations because the, the CISOs are going to be the ones who are going to partner with the organization, manage that risk, which could very well impact those premiums uh, on top of everything else. All right, very good. Troy, I want to get uh, one more question to you from our friend, regular attendee and industry legend, Bill Spooner. Chuck, I think you've met Bill once or twice, right? So, <laughs> yeah, a few times. Yeah, <laughs> once absolutely. Or twice. All right, what role should an independent cybersecurity assessment play in the safe harbor provisions recently provided? One of your well-known industry colleagues recently opined that a self-assessment is no assessment. Troy? Yeah, well, I think 
I think doing both is is really important. I think when you're looking at organizational cybersecurity risk assessment, it's important for you to be partnering with your compliance and, and internal audit groups to, to be assessing risk that way. But then I think also partnering with an external firm to, to look at your security posture independently. And that, you know, that can be your, your big four auditor. You know, it can be a cybersecurity organization, but then always taking that data and acting upon it, right? Making sure that's in your risk register, you're reporting that data to your board, and, and I think one thing that Eric said that I would emphasize is assigning accountability and ownership. Now, now, it's really all a team sport, but it has to be very clear within an organization who has accountability to remediate threat or, or risk within the organization. And then, and then as, as a CISO, I think knowing your board and then having a heat map like Chuck talked about that actualizes you know, you know, and aggregates uh, risk register items and puts it in business terms for the board to to be able to understand clearly. All right, 15 second lightning round, last word, Chuck. Uh, I, I think we've, you know, the, the thing about it is, I, I guess um, that uh, security is not just security's responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. Uh, and uh, you you have to instill that in the, in the entire organization uh, through education uh, and uh, you know just doing things to keep people on their toes uh, to make sure they're not doing something that is going to put the organization at risk and they under, they need to understand what that risk is uh, and you know, and make sure that you're partnering with the right group of folks in the organization. The folks in clinical engineering uh, should be your friend. The folks uh, in uh, the rest of the IT department should be your friend. The folks at risk uh, in compliance, privacy, uh, and you know, whoever's uh, you know working on uh, insurance uh, it could be your COO or it could be compliance. So you need a lot of friends in order to get this done. You need a lot of friends. Very good, Eric. Uh, on the topics of threat intelligence, I would say join HISAC if you're in healthcare. Um, that should be on the top of your list. I would also engage in, go out to CISA's website and see what the services are that you can consume from them. Sign up for the AIS system, the automated indicator sharing system, and bring that into your system, your, um, your organization. You can do proactive blocking you know, out of, out of that feed. And lastly, grab Hiccup and take a read and start looking at it. <laughs> Very good. Troy, last word. Yeah, you know, cybersecurity is a team sport inside and outside of an organization. And, and I think it's important for, for boards and cybersecurity leaders and CIOs to, to really understand and, and, uh, and adopt, that, adopt that methodology. All right. Very good. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you could reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to view upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Chuck Christian, Eric Decker, and Troy Ament. And I want to thank our partner, HHS405D, for uh, being with us today and our sponsor Fortinet for making the event possible and you are attendees with that everybody have a wonderful day thank you <laughs> <laughs>